Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is George Goodwin. He is currently Honorary Author-in-Residence at Benjamin Franklin House, which is the world's only remaining Franklin home. Mr. Goodwin is also a fellow at the Royal Historical Society, the Chartered Institute of Marketing, and the Royal Society of Arts. In this episode, he discusses his latest book, Benjamin Franklin in London, The British Life of America's Founding Father. And now, Mr. Goodwin and Dr. Bradburn. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Doug Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington here at beautiful Mount Vernon. And uh, our conversation today is, is going to be lively and interesting, I promise you, because I'm joined by George Goodwin, Esquire, Benjamin Franklin in London, The British Life of America's Founding Father. Welcome, George. Thank you very much indeed, Doug. I'm very much looking forward to this. There's no Esquire at the end of the name. Well, actually, there is because yes. I'm a graduate of Cambridge University, uh, so I'm actually allowed to use it. Well, and that's what you said about in your book on Franklin. You said he, he put the uh, the Esquire in as soon as he was allowed to use it. Was that about being a gentleman and being sort of like a in man of independent means? Oh, absolutely. He was trying to uh, project himself up the social scale. Mm. So as soon as he got his honorary doctorate from St. Andrews, uh. He was Dr. Franklin from that moment <laughs> forward. He's a man who, um, uh, who, who had created himself in many ways throughout his life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not, it's not rags to riches. His rise has been portrayed as, you know, coming up from the gutter, but... Um, sort of like comfortable <coughs> clothes to fine clothes. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, really, that's, really, that's really not, not quite it. Be I mean, his father was um, an independent businessman. Mm. He was a tallow chandler and, and soap maker. Maybe from time to time there were a bit of a money problem, but then if you've got 17 children, there's yeah. bound to be a bit of a money problem. <laughs> and... Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he was independent. You always find out something just when the book's gone to press. <laughs> I found out something which was um, Benjamin Franklin's uh, father had a portrait made of his wife, Benjamin Franklin's mother. What's her name? Do you know uh, her Abaya. Name? Abaya Folger. Oh, right. Okay. She was from, from Nantucket. Well, she, and that's a name he uses as one of his characters, Abaya, doesn't he? No, Obadiah. Obajaya. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. Right. Yeah, well. yeah. I don't think he would. Uh, I don't think he would take his mother's uh, name in vain. Anyway, <laughs> the thing is that um, you know you had to have some sort of social standing mm -hmm. to have a portrait mm -hmm. painted. Yeah. Now, as I said, it's not a, a rags to riches story, but it is in in one sense. And I'm afraid I have to prepare the audience for a very very bad pun here. Um, <laughs> they were. Franklin and his wife Deborah were incredibly successful as merchants when uh, when Franklin set up in business, and um, 
one stage they were the biggest paper merchants in America. This is aside from all, all the printing and the newspapers mm. and everything. Now rags were made into paper. Ah, here we are, yes. And uh, in one year, <laughs> Deborah collected 16,000 pounds in weight of rags, which she turned into 1,000 pounds of money. Mm. So to that there extent, rags uh, to riches. That is, uh, sounds like a studied uh, story there, George. Yeah, it's pretty bad, that, That's good. It? Yeah. That's yeah. very good. So there is a rags to riches story. Well, before we get into it, it's in a fascinating book, uh, I want to learn a little bit more about how you came to Franklin, because in looking at your uh, vita here, uh, you, the author of uh, three highly acclaimed books, the first two, uh, they must be in a series because they have the, the same title, almost Fatal Colors and Fatal Rivalry. Uh, yes, my daughter rather sort of teased me, saying, oh, well, is this going to be called Fatal Franklin then? <laughs> but we decided to drop the fatal for Franklin. So we have Towton, 1461, and Flodden, 1513. Explain. Well, the, the Towton book, um, there is a battle, uh, the bloodiest battle on English soil, mm. which ended the first war of the roses um it was um as i said it was absolutely it was fought in blizzard conditions so this would have been the creation of the tudor dynasty for those not quite yet not quite not okay. quite yet this was the the first war uh where uh, henry the sixth a crowned and anointed king mm. so they had great difficulty getting rid of him mm. uh particularly poor chap he suffered from schizophrenia mm. um he hadn't broken his coronation oath because he hadn't really done very much at all. <laughs> that was that was the problem. So, uh, but eventually, part of the uh, of the aristocracy aristocracy supported uh, another noble house, the House of York. So it was right, the right. it was a fight between the, uh, the House of Lancaster and the House of York. The House of York won. Uh, Edward the Fourth became the new king. Uh, he was sort of totally different instead of being this sort of poor broken 50 year old he was this six foot four strapping 19 year old mm. who who won won the battle but the Lancastrians they lost so many people because they got trapped on the battlefield they, they couldn't escape it was basically uh, England's it was like England's Armageddon mm. when um, Mallory Thomas Mallory was writing his Mort d'Arthur mm -hmm. when he was writing about Armageddon at the end he had Towton really in mind. Yes, it was yeah. that. It was that kind of devastation. Happened on the 29th of March. Ah, hmm. uh, <laughs> now what else is? Oh yes, Article 50 <laughs> on the 29th of March to leave the EU, and it's actually quite amusing because um, um, British papers have obviously been dredging through, thinking, "Oh, what else yeah, happened on, right, the on this date?" OCD, on, yes, exactly. And they've <laughs> they've come up with with Towton. So there's all this magnificent stuff uh, stolen from my book. Not credited, of course. <laughs> you know, what can you expect? So I, I have been sending... Not bitter at all, though, George. No, no, but I have been sending urgent messages to my, uh, to my British publisher, you know, just to, yes. to tell them Yes, get me out there. Get yeah. me on exactly. the channels. Exactly. Well, too bad you're in America on a Franklin tour. Good timing you. Absolutely. But well, uh, well, look, I mean, England had a great golden age after Towton, <laughs> so you, you have to look forward to that. The Renaissance, I mean, come on, that's something. Well, actually, that does, does lead us very neatly <laughs> on to the second book, yes, which is, uh, that's called Fatal Rivalry. Yes. And it's the rivalry between Henry VIII of England 
always mm. a popular figure, yes. and James the Fourth of Scotland, mm. who was on the morning of the 9th of September, fifteen thirteen, poised to go down in history as undoubtedly Scotland's greatest king. Uh-oh. Unfortunately, but. he lost the Battle <laughs> of Flodden. Ah. It was a disaster. Uh, there was one unforeseen circumstance. I mean, basically, his opponent, the Earl of Surrey, the 70-year-old arthritic Earl of Surrey, mm. didn't play by the rules. Uh-oh. Well, uh, because Sar- chivalry is dead, a they chival- say that. Chivalry was very <laughs> much dead, uh, and um, according according to the rules of of war at the time, um, Surrey appeared to be basically leaving the battlefield. Mm. Uh, James was not surprised at that, but unfortunately for James, Surrey knew that if he hadn't won the battle, that would have been the end of his his family, the Howards. Mm, Uh, It turned out okay for for Surrey. He did win the battle, and the Howards from that moment henceforward have been the leading noble family in England, Mm. the Dukes of Norfolk. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, uh, he established himself... And they remained Catholic, right, the Howards? They remained Catholic, and... um, But this is before all that mess. This is... uh, Oh yeah, That's still a generation. Oh, abso- yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. But um, the the family uh, really did prosper. Um, mm-hmm. Two of his granddaughters became queens of England. Mm-hmm. That's the good yeah. news. Well. The bad news, <laughs> well, yeah. the bad news was that they were Anne Boleyn and Catherine <laughs> Howard, the two who got beheaded. But never mind. <laughs> I was going to say you and I knew that little ditty was <laughs> coming. But oh, so this seems a bit of a leap then to all of a sudden be writing about the great American founding father Benjamin Franklin in London. How do we get? Uh, from this, these fields of blood to, uh, to uh, Benjamin Franklin? Well, I've always been very interested in 18th century history. Mm. But like a lot of, of good things, uh, there was a degree of serendipity about mm. this. Mm. I was taking a rest from uh, writing the Fatal Rivalry book. Mm. Um, fatal rest, we'll call it. Fatal rest, fatal rest. And uh, decided to um, have a restorative cup of coffee <laughs> and uh, on the radio on BBC Radio 4 they have a program called In Our Time mm-hmm. with Melvin Bragg now um, Melvin Bragg it's the most wonderful wonderful job he has for himself it's actually one of one of many I mean he's been one of our leading broadcasters for, for decades and decades mm-hmm. but in this program what he does is he takes a topic and one week it could be um, black holes the next week it could be Aristotle, mm-hmm. the next week it could be a Moorish art, but in this case it was Benjamin Franklin. Ah, there you are. And um, every week, as I said, he gets, uh, he gets three academics around and they were, they were chatting away about the life of Benjamin Franklin. Interesting. Do you remember who they were? No, I don't. Uh, good. Well, no, I right. don't. But I'm sure I've cited them in my book. It's very, very important. <laughs> Names never to be spoken. No, no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Actually, I do remember. Shoulders of which you stand upon. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do remember who they were, but, you know, they've all written on Franklin, and I don't want them to uh, preempt me. Anyway, um, the, um, the thing is that um, they got onto Franklin in London, briefly, briefly, like in all uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, general biographies. Mm. Uh, there's a bit on London. 
but it's not to the fore. And I thought to myself, but this is this is so fascinating. Mm. I'm really interested in this. I've always had an interest in Franklin. Mm. And so I wonder, I wonder if anybody has specifically written on his time in London mm. and actually concentrated on the British Franklin. Right. And after all, I mean, he lived for 84 years and three months. And for four-fifths of that, he regarded himself as British. Mm. And I know it's four-fifths because <laughs> I got my pocket calculator <laughs> out and I counted up the days, the months, and the years. And I think well, it, it was... Even during your rest, you did this. Absolutely. Extraordinary. And I think it was 80.1% of his time he was, he was British. But well, we would all love to have biographies written about one-fifth of our life. So you, you said, yes, I'm going to do that for Franklin. Well, I said, well, I was going to do it for four-fifths no, of, four yeah, four of, of his life. Four-fifths of his life, Doug. Because, in fact, there's been, <laughs> there's been the concentration on the, um, yeah. the one-fifth. So um, I was very, very happy mm. to do it. Mm. And the British influence on Franklin was phenomenal. And mm. I was able to, um, with this, destroy uh, a few old shibboleths about Franklin. Right. Um, yeah. I was able to destroy the idea that he was this kind of demented skirt chaser, <laughs> which I'm afraid seems to have, have taken credence. And I can tell yeah. you, there is one quote. Mm. There is one quote. Um, <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson is supposed to have said that Benjamin Franklin wasn't safe around women. Mm. Now, the wonderful thing, of course, um, that one has these days with the, the, paper, the various yes. papers projects yeah. set up, uh, if I remember rightly, I think by President Truman, I think, got them started in, in the first place. So you have all the... Yeah, the Jefferson's was started early, yeah, yeah. in the 40s. Yeah, yeah. and you have... They're all, still working on it. Exactly. In fact, I think they're working on it so hard they've now have to divide it between two universities. Yes. That's how hard they're working. Yes. Um, but anyway, Jefferson um, wrote to Madison. I was able to to go online on the founders online mm -hmm. in the Jefferson papers and put in "not safe around women" or something very very similar. And up came a letter from Jefferson to Madison. Mm. He wasn't talking about Franklin. Mm. He was talking about David Franks. Ah, Completely different. Not the same man. Not the same man <laughs> at all. And actually, I mean, just as, just as Melvin Bragg uh, trusts academics, uh, so do I. <laughs> and they had a, uh, a three-day conference of academics uh, talking about Franklin and women. They so, did. Yep, and they weren't all, all women at this, uh, at this conference. They're very, very top people. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, you know, all this uh, nonsense about him being this kind of demented skirt chaser. It's, it, it's ludicrous. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a young man, yes, certainly he did have an illegitimate child, but that is mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, his son, William, had an illegitimate child in London called William Temple Franklin. And I have to say that William Temple Franklin had an illegitimate child. <laughs> the only difference was the first two were sons, the last one was a daughter, but they kind of followed in a tradition. Mm. And bearing in mind the differences between them during the War of Independence, it's actually quite interesting that um, Benjamin Franklin looked after uh, his son William's illegitimate child, 
and William looked after his son William Temple's illegitimate mm. child. Well, there you go. So though they were completely it's sort a family of business. A split, you know, when it came <laughs> to, to looking after the, the child, yeah. they, uh, they, d they did their duty. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating thing to bring across on, on Franklin. I know that that is, everyone always asks that question about his skirt chasing, and I think a big part of it is the French uh, story as well, which you don't get into at all, because no. this is about Brent Franklin in London. No, that's right. I mean, and, and also, I mean, the, as far as the, the French was concerned, it was almost like sort of medieval courtly love code. Yeah. You know, lots of sort of kiss, kiss, kiss. Yeah. Um, but uh, I... Um, I talked to Paige Talbot, who arranged the um, mm. the great tercentenary exhibition uh, in 2006. The traveling it traveled across America uh, to to celebrate. They brought all these the, the great possessions that Franklin had all together mm. in this fantastic um, um, exhibition. In fact, you can still. It, Thank God, uh, Yale University Press, my publisher, actually published this as a book, which you can you can mm. still get. Anyway, I was discussing this with Paige, and I'm sure that she won't mind me saying that uh, that her view, I mean, sh uh, was that, um, and and she'd known, she'd had relatives who, uh, you know, didn't mind having a young lady sitting on their knee, mm. but if the young lady had actually suggested anything more, they would have run a mile. Right. And I think Franklin was rather similar. <laughs> uh, I, well, that that's uh, that that seems to fit the character generally. I think as well. Uh, so, all right. Well, let's get to Franklin then. He um, uh, he's not a rags to riches sort of guy, but he definitely has to work for his bread uh, coming up. And and he we all know we think we know. And he becomes a printer's apprentice, and then ultimately a printer. What I was uh, delighted to see in this book is his first trip to London, which I don't think I've really ever read anything about or at least registered anything about. Uh, talk about why he went to London as a young man. Well, um, he came to, to London for 18 months between 1724 and 1726. So in 1724, he was 18. Mm. Now, uh, in his autobiography, he tells us of how he arrived in uh, Philadelphia, having fled from being an apprentice to his mm. brother in, in Boston. Mm. And um, it's wonderful. I mean, um, Franklin's autobiography is basically the first celebrity autobiography. <laughs> and uh, it is very much tailored to the image that Franklin wanted to project. He was mm. very, very good at doing that. Anyway, so he, he, he leaves us with the, the um, perception that he arrives in Philadelphia, uh, he doesn't have any money. What is he going to do? He goes and, and has to, uh, to have a little snooze in a Quaker meeting, and the Quakers look after him. Very good politically, too, <laughs> uh, considering that he became leader of what was known as the Quaker faction. Mm. They weren't all Quakers, of course. But he had a skill. Mm. He had a skill in demand. He knew about printing. Mm. So he very quickly got himself a job with a character called Samuel Keimer, who he's actually not very nice about mm. in, the, uh, in the autobiography. But Keimer obviously does seem to have been quite a, a strange character. Mm. Anyway, uh, one day he had a visit, Franklin had a visit, and was taken out. The equivalent, the modern equivalent would be being taken out to lunch. Mm. But in fact, he was taken to a tavern by the governor of, mm. uh, the lieutenant governor 
of uh, Pennsylvania, Sir William Keith. And Sir William Keith said, well, look, um, why don't, uh, why don't uh, you come and, and set up with me? I'll give you all the, all the, the government business, but what we need to do first is we need to send you to London to buy a printing press. Now, uh, so why did why did Keith have interest in this young Franklin? Well, this this is um, <laughs> I'll tell you the next move was was for uh, Franklin to go and talk to his own father to go yeah. back to Boston mm. and say, and uh, Sir William is very keen for you to invest in mm. this scheme. Yeah, and his father. Uh, really, Josiah was really not that sure about it. And he said, well, you know, if, if um, Sir William is the man that we think he is, or we think he might be, then really he should be investing in this himself. Mm. Now, so Franklin goes on board ship with his friend James Ralph, and uh, they go to London on, on ship. However, what happened was that, uh, well, Franklin thought, you know, that he was told that the letters of introduction had been left, you know, for him. And uh, Keith's sort of um, right-hand man turned up with some letters to put in the post bag. Mm. And uh, Franklin thought, well, this is all settled. Now, he obviously got on very well with the ship's captain because um, as they approached, um, as they approached Britain, uh, he said, well, you know, can I actually go through the post bag and see if we can find some, some letters? Mm. And he actually couldn't find any which had his name on, but he could see some in um, Sir William Keith's handwriting. Mm -hmm. He said, aha, <laughs> so these are the ones uh, we will, uh, I will deliver them. And one was to a stationer. So he delivered this to the stationer. Yeah, yeah well, that makes sense. So yeah, this exactly. would be one for him, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that the stationer would say, ah, oh, yes, this young man, Benjamin Franklin, yeah, this is letters of credit, blah, blah, blah. Stationer opened it and said, uh, no, no, this, this concerns doing business with a man called Riddleston, who is a complete and utter crook. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, there was actually nothing for Franklin at all. Yeah. So we can only speculate <laughs> what, what Keith had in mind. Uh, uh. Fortunately, um, Andrew Hamilton, who was a, um, a great lawyer in Philadelphia, he'd put all his stores on board ship, but uh, he was called away for a, a highly remunerative legal case. Mm. So there were, there were spaces um, and provisions, and the other, if you like, sort of first-class passengers saw these two young fellows, Franklin and Ralph, found that they were quite entertaining, mm. and invited them in. And one of them was a, um, a merchant called Denham, who basically said about Keith, you know, he's always making these kind of false promises, mm. uh, you know, where he doesn't have the wherewithal. And fortunately, uh, he was taken um, under, under Denham's um, wing. And, um, but in, again, importantly, there was a letter uh, that Franklin opened which showed that there was a conspiracy against Andrew Hamilton. Mm. Mm. Andrew Hamilton uh, was already in London. Now, how could this have happened that, you know, he'd stayed behind on the legal case? Well, um, his ship had had a much uh, quicker crossing, so mm. it was actually in London before the ship that he should have been on. Mm. And um, Franklin took the, the letter to him. Hamilton was so grateful that many years later, 
when Franklin was a successful printer, um, the printer to the assembly, Samuel Bradford, did a pretty bad job. Franklin did a very sensible thing that he printed perfect copies mm. for free to give to the assembly members and Hamilton made sure he got the business. Yeah. So uh, that was the kind of acumen. So showing as a young man, he had this opportunity to make this connection with Hamilton. He did so and he exploited it later. And that's yeah. almost like the sort of story of Franklin's life. He didn't do this business of, oh, that seems a, a great idea. I'm gonna agonize over it. Yeah. He did have a thing called uh, prudential or moral algebra, <laughs> which uh, is yeah. almost kind of like a, like a sort of Myers-Briggs sort <laughs> of uh, test, but far, far more sort of thing. He basically, he would look at, a pro um, look at a particular problem or opportunity, and he on the left-hand side, he would write down all the pros. On the right-hand side, he would write down all the cons, and then he would come back over a couple of days, and he would knock out various pros or the various cons and in the end he would make a decision mm. but he was decisive he wasn't somebody oh well maybe I shall maybe I shan't he's sort of that was sort of the nature yeah. of his mind that he would think things through and he could keep lots of different alternatives yeah. going at the same time he was actually like a sort of a grand chess or rather a chess grandmaster playing lots of different tables it was extraordinary for all that i mean franklin uh you know for his his calculating nature and his ability to master sort of multiple options he didn't always judge people particularly well i mean the keith is a good example oh i think you're it, being a little bit hard there doug i mean he was uh, he was only 18. no 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 well that that's for sure but i'm always thinking more beyond that later on when you know he thinks he's got opportunities that he doesn't ultimately get with the British ministry and you know he sort of um, you know he, he makes some political miscalculations which I, I mean anybody would it's so complicated I Britain. think I think in a sense that is um, because he had this belief that logic would always mm. prevail mm. and uh, <laughs> and it didn't and, and I'm afraid in terms of the judgment there was one really bad misjudgment in in Paris when he was the Minister of Plenipotentiary during the war, mm. when his own secretary, Edward Bancroft, uh, and actually this wasn't discovered until the 1860s, much, much later, mm. but his own secretary, Edward Bancroft, was a British double agent. <laughs> yeah. Bit tricky, that. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes one sort of thinks, well, maybe, maybe Franklin kind of half knew about this, mm. and this was all about sort of secret channels, but I'm not so sure about mm. that. All right, so Franklin uh, uh, finds a London in the 1720s that uh, is exciting for him. It's filled with the coffeehouse culture. There's men of science. There's, there's men of, uh, you know, of parts there that he can interact with and uh, of a like he can't get in America. Well, absolutely. I mean, because yeah. at the time, in the 1720s, um, Boston was the, the biggest town in America. It had a population of 6,700. <laughs> yeah. Philadelphia was uh, a little bit smaller, uh, if I remember rightly, around about 5,000. Uh, London was the great imperial capital it had a population of 575,000. I mean, it must have been an amazing culture shock. I mean, I don't know how, how you, I mean, uh, I mean, maybe you gradually come upon it in the, you know, in the 18th century in a way that nowadays you just plop down in the middle of that stuff. But 
I mean, I can't imagine how different that would have been, you know, from a Boston to a London. Oh, uh, completely. Yeah. Completely different. However, um, he was a great reader. Mm. And the and what he'd been reading uh, were British authors such as Defoe and Locke. And so he, he was an Addison, most of all. Addison mm. in The Spectator, this is actually how he turned himself into being such a brilliant journalist, mm. that he would read issues of The Spectator, he would take on board the arguments, and then he would actually rewrite them from memory. Mm. So, he so he had the arguments on board, but then he would actually, uh, he would impose his own style. Mm. And um, I mean, I suppose the extraordinary thing is that uh, when he was working for his um, his brother James back in Boston as a sixteen-year-old, he started doing spoof pieces for mm. his brother's newspaper. Unbeknownst to his brother, he actually shoved the first one under the door. In fact, he shoved all of them under the door. How did his brother not know his handwriting? He must have disguised it. That, in some yeah, well, yes, actually, that is <laughs> that is a very good point that yeah. I haven't thought about. Maybe, um, yeah, because of course, you know, it had to be handwriting or nothing. Yeah. So maybe he did it left-handed, or goodness you knows know, what. Yeah. But it was disguised, mm. um, and after. Trying to remember, I think fourteen of these from memory, uh, of the Silas Duguid letters, mm. where where um, young Franklin posed as Silas Duguid, this widow, this widow woman, talking about pensions and lots of <laughs> other things, very very wittily. Mm. Um, he he sort of said, "Oh well, you know, uh, this is this is going very well. It's the first page of the of the newspaper of the." Um, of my brother's newspaper and uh, but uh, you know I've running out of steam a bit perhaps I should announce that it's me his brother was absolutely furious mm. about mm. it because he felt that he'd been a bit humiliated yeah. by this oh, absolutely yeah so you've been secretly publishing or publishing your brother's work without knowing it and it's your younger brother no I, I completely understand a bit, <laughs> bit of sibling rivalry <laughs> yeah. creeps in there yeah, yeah. so uh, so yes mm. that was a uh, that was a bit of a problem <laughs> I think one of the interesting uh, stories of his young time in London was uh, him almost meeting Newton oh and actually this comes back <laughs> I'm delighted to say to the the um, to the question you asked me mm. about how did he fit in in this yeah. big bustling city well he had extraordinary self-confidence mm. um, he was very keen to, to meet Sir Isaac Newton um, he rightly regarded him as a, a scientific genius mm. and bearing in mind uh, what Franklin did later mm. uh, you know a, a, a would-be a would-be mentor Newton was actually uh, towards the end of his life then. He died, Franklin came over in, in 1724 to six. Um, Newton died in 1727. He was really quite, quite ill. Franklin met a collaborator of, of Newton's called Pemberton and Pemberton uh, time and time again said, well, I will introduce you to the great man, but it never <laughs> ever quite happened. Yeah. But. Um, the famous portrait of Benjamin Franklin uh, during his time in London when he's dressed up as an English gentleman with his yeah. wig. Um, there's a bust on the table 
and that's the bust of um, Sir Isaac Newton. Mm. So this this portrait in the 1760s, he was a hero. Newton was a hero to, to mm. Franklin. Mm -hmm. However, uh, Newton did meet, um, uh, sorry, Franklin did meet Newton's uh, number two at the Royal Society, uh, Sir Hans Sloane. Mm. And we know about this because he sold him something. He sold him an asbestos purse. Which is just surprising. It is rather <laughs> surprising for this uh, yeah. for this teenage printer to um, to actually communicate with um, this extremely important figure, mm. uh, but he knew that Sloane was a um, a great collector, such a great collector that when Sloane died in 1753, his collection became the founding collection of the British Museum, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, in that collection was the asbestos purse, <laughs> which uh, Sloan had bought. And it's wonderful for historians when you have different pieces of evidence. Yeah. You have the asbestos purse. It's actually now in the Natural History Museum because the British Museum sort of divided. It was getting so big. Mm. Um, of course, uh, it's not on sort <laughs> of uh, the open shelves, if you like, an <laughs> open display. It's in this enormous, great, thick, uh, perspex box <laughs> so that people don't in, inhale the fumes. So we have yeah. that. We have Franklin talking about it in the autobiography. And I think, as, as I intimated before, not always quite uh, quite sort of uh, spot on with mm. the uh, autobiography. It's a little bit sort of self-serving. Mm. So in this, well, it's extremely self-serving. <laughs> um, and in this, um, he says, oh, well, Sir Hans came to see me. Oh, no, I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> um, and we know this because... Because he heard about the purse somehow. This is well, why Hans sought him out. Well, yeah, yes, yeah, this is the kind of thing. Uh, but we, we have the letter. We have the letter in the papers yeah. of Benjamin Franklin. Um, and it's uh, there it is in, the, in all the, the bound volumes of the, uh, the papers of Benjamin Franklin uh, project. I think we're up to 41 now. Uh, it's one of these where... Um, uh, they're asked uh, on, a, uh, on a regular basis how much longer it will be to do all the letters and the replies will, well, I think will be another 10 years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, but they are absolute, it's the most brilliant collection. So as well as buying my book, of course, I think you <laughs> must buy all the volumes. Anyway, uh, to come to, uh, to, come to <coughs> the point, um, it has a rather interesting postscript in it. And the postscript in the letter that Franklin has written to Sir Hans Lone says, uh, even though, you know, basically Franklin had already been in London for 18 months, he was all going to be here for another six months at least, um, he writes, Franklin writes, I'm only here for two to three days, <laughs> so please contact me uh, immediately. It will be in your interest to do so. <laughs> you know, he's like a huckster. He, yeah. It's like the sort of modern marketing thing of hurry now to avoid disappointment. <laughs> I mean, he had extraordinary, Franklin had extraordinary yeah. self-confidence that um, partly through his, his printer connections, he met up with... Um, some of the top authors of the time. There was a chap called Bernard, Bernard Vanderville who wrote a, a rather scurrilous book called Fable of the Bees. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mandeville took this, um, took young Franklin under his wing. Mm -hmm. And there was Franklin enjoying coffee house society. Mm -hmm. the, the, what he'd read about in, in, the, um, 
in the Spectator writers of mm. uh, of Joseph Addison, he was now living that life. Yeah. Quite extraordinary. Yeah, when I, and it would have a major impact on him back in Philadelphia as he would kind of become one of these characters that he'd read about and he'd become like all the great charitable founders that Defoe writes about and, oh, and all that. Completely. I mean, yeah. as soon as he gets back to... Um, well, as soon as he gets back to uh, to Philadelphia, he goes back with uh, his um, with his friend uh, with his friend Denham, uh, and actually to begin with, uh, um, he doesn't start as a as a printer. Mm. He uh, he is apprenticed to Denham as a merchant, mm. and as was proved later, uh, if um, he had gone down that particular route, he would have been a, a very successful merchant because he proved himself with yeah. the with you know the paper and uh, yeah the set, business that he built you know, the printing he, business exactly the, that he was know, all the apprentices he sent everywhere and yeah. these sort of franchise relationships yeah well this was you're right this yeah. was the apprentice yeah. you know he, yeah. he he set up all kinds the original apprentice yeah absolutely <laughs> he set up as a printer he set right, up right. all kinds of franchise businesses down the Atlantic coast mm. um, clever Franklin uh, a, he had this brilliant technical ability of being mm. able to repair type when that went wrong, mm. so he didn't have to wait for type to come through from England. This was something completely new. And the other thing was that all these uh, different printing uh, franchise firms, they had the same typeface, mm -hmm. Caslon typeface, so that um, for a big job, he could actually move it up, right. up and down. Right. But in terms of setting up all these great institutions, when he returned, he did so. First of all, he set up his own um, coffee house society equivalent in, in the Junto mm. uh, with his friends. Uh, he also then started setting up, uh, you know, as soon as he was successful in business, around about the age of sort of 24 or so, he started setting up organizations such as the Library Company, which stemmed from, from the Junto they started lending each other books, and then they set it up on a on a more formal basis. Mm. And this was the first public lending library yeah. in America. Then he set up the American Philosophical Society. He started later what was to become the Ivy League University of Pennsylvania. Mm. He set up the first uh, public hospital in America. He set up fire insurance, a fire service, extraordinary the range of, yeah. of things he set the up. The things I like about your emphasis on Franklin is that there has, you know, with, with all of his aphorisms about thrift and earning money and the hard work leading to money, uh, there are oftentimes when he sort of mischaracterizes someone who just likes to make money, you know, that the purpose of life is to make lots of money. But in Franklin's case, uh, the, you, know, you, were, you were working to be able to do good in a different way, right? I mean, Absolutely. And of course, yeah. again, this is another great sort of misconception about Franklin, mm. that uh, the, um, the introduction to uh, the last Poor Richard Almanac, 1758, has been published separately as um, The Way to Wealth. Yes, right. And yeah. uh, <coughs> Franklin has been sort of projected, has all kinds of sort of aphorisms about uh, making money and it was um, it has allowed Franklin to be projected as this sort of um, 
Greed is good, <laughs> uh, Gordon Gecko style sort yeah. of capitalist. And he wasn't like that at all. He wrote that the idea of, of dying well and leaving lots of money to him was completely and utterly ridiculous. Mm. The, the money was there to be passed on for good purposes. Mm. And he did this in his will. He left a vast sum of money both to Boston, his birthplace, and to Philadelphia. Mm. And uh, they have reaped the rewards. I mean, the Franklin Institute um, has, um, in Philadelphia, is, is this enormous great science uh, museum, mm. is the product of that. And in Boston, schools have been set mm. up mm. Um, because the money actually was left untouched, as he said it should be, for a hundred years <laughs> after his death. He was very good. Compounding. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> he was very good on yeah. the idea of a, a hundred years. Now, um, <laughs> one scientific experiment mm. that uh, he, he thought was, um, he actually got this one slightly wrong, um, that um, some Madeira had been delivered to London when he was in London. Uh, it was opened and obviously uh, they took their eyes away for a moment and found that uh, there were a couple of, of flies which mm. seemed to have been drowned which resuscitated in the um, on this dish um, you know it was the sun sort of brought them back to life now he thought they'd actually been in the Madeira mm. so Franklin had <laughs> this idea that may, wouldn't it be fantastic if he and his chums could be buried in Madeira and come back to life in a hundred years' time. Uh, he didn't. He realised that he, you know, what had gone wrong, and he couldn't go through with this. But actually, this is symptomatic of yeah. his view. Mm -hmm. He realised that America was going to be this absolutely formidable. Mm. Um, well, I, I almost said country, but he didn't mean country because he thought it was going to be part of. Great Britain. It was going to be part of the Great British Empire of of North America, and he projected that the the population of America would double every twenty five years. Yeah. And between seventeen twenty and eighteen seventy, if you track those figures, he was right. Yeah, it's one of the fastest growths in recorded human history of any society. That uh, that that rate. It's really extraordinary. It, it went up by twenty four. Times a multiplier yeah. of twenty-four times, so into millions. He had a major impact on Malthus and the theories of uh, population that came out of that. And abs political abs economy. You know, the the thing that's so so exciting about the the eighteenth-century moment, I think, in the science, the the uh, the enthusiasm for the inventions and the improvement of the world and the classification of the world, the Enlightenment in general, is. Um, I mean, you know, it's there's so many crazy theories that you can still get away with. You know, there's so much that's unknown on the one hand, and yet there's so many things that can be shown and done, and they're on the verge of the the great breakthroughs. And it's such an exciting time. You know, it's so tedious now. You have to specialize to do anything uh, to such an extent. Whereas he could be a polymath. I mean, obviously he's a genius, so he could do it. But um, but he could move from from thing to thing in, in a remarkable way. And, and just as with wealth, 
that it was seen to be for the, the public good. Mm. So with science was seen to be for the public good. Mm. So he never took out any patents mm. on his inventions. Actually, with the, um, with the, the famous Franklin stove, that probably wasn't actually a bad thing because it never really quite worked. Well, the lightning rod would have done pretty well. The lightning rod would have done very, very well. But Franklin, yeah. quite rightly, was absolutely furious on the stove mm. uh, that somebody had taken, taken it on, had improved it, mm. but took out a patent. Uh, and this went against the entire sort of ethos mm. of 18th century science. Mm. The idea would be that you would take something, that you would work on it, uh, and then uh, if somebody else was able to improve what you mm. had invented, whether it be a clock, um, or whether it be any kind of machinery, then that was the point. The mm. whole point was the, um, the pursuit of excellence, uh, the pursuit of improvement, and the excitement of mm. science that they were making yeah. all these incredible discoveries and because of that attitude um, of course it was the the threshold of the industrial revolution yeah. and of uh, of modern society it's an interesting world because on the one hand you have that cosmopolitanism of the scientists you know who are the universal brotherhood of man and and science and these laws of nature at the same time, you have the sort of uh, the competition of the nation states and the empires, you know, to have those products that they will, you know, find a new plant that can become the new staple crop of this new place to conquer. And, and they're in great competition with each other. And so it's a, an interesting uh, world with that. On the one hand, this sort of competition. On the other hand, this cosmopolitanism of the scientists. It's really quite remarkable. Exactly. I mean, going back to science, of course, I mean, he's um, probably most famous uh, in terms of his um, electrical experiments mm. uh, for the kite experiment. Now, actually, that's, that's rather looking at it the wrong way. Mm. Uh, he was not the first to do the kite experiment. Mm. Uh, he only did it to prove it to himself. Mm. It had actually already many times been done in France, yeah. sometimes, unfortunately, rather successfully so. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, with frazzled Frenchmen uh, f f finding that uh, in fact it killed them because they uh, they got they got struck by lightning. Uh, they'd also actually the, f the French were were very keen on on um, experiments with uh, shows, if you like, with electricity. Uh, there was rather cruelly uh, Louis the Fifteenth rather liked to see experiments of putting a shock through um, his first his guardsmen to see them all leap in the air at the same time. <laughs> and then there was the bell. And he thought this was such fun that they actually did it with a couple of hundred Carthusian monks doing it. So uh, <laughs> they were okay. They managed to they managed actually to get the right the right yeah, level goodness. of shock through them. <laughs> well, all right. So we, we've uh, we've we haven't gotten to the Franklin in London, so we can't do that justice. And that's why you're gonna have to buy the book because you're gonna wanna know the full story. But uh, suffice it to say, let's let's leap leap to the story. And in, in, in short, Franklin goes to London initially because he's an agent for Pennsylvania. 
That's yeah. right. Well, he, yeah. he, of course, you have the, the trip as the young man. Then he goes back in 1757. He is now the established uh, man of business. He retired at the age of 42. Oh, uh, doesn't everybody? That's your rest time, wasn't yeah, it? Well, yeah, well, he retired <laughs> at the age of 42 in 1748. Uh, now, bear in mind that the average life expectancy of an, of an urban American at that time was 42. So every single thing he did after 1748, that was kind of like a retirement job, if you like. <laughs> anyway, um, so after he retired, he threw himself full time into public service. In the 1750s, uh, he, um, he set up all kinds of other things. He was the first person to set up the militia in, uh, in Philadelphia in order because they were worried in, uh, in King George's War that the French were going to invade. Anyway, he became a leading member of the assembly. Now, they had a problem in, uh, in Pennsylvania. It was a proprietary colony. The Pens basically owned it. Mm. Imagine owning a, an area the size of England. And... Uh, they, um, they governed with grants. The assembly could get them to, to give them grants, but they needed to set up a proper taxation system. So across the Atlantic came Benjamin Franklin to negotiate with Thomas Penn, who was the leading proprietor of, of Pennsylvania, to try and get him to pay some taxes. <laughs> Didn't go well. <laughs> Didn't go well at all. Uh, partly, of course, because uh, Penn did not want to pay any taxes, but also because Franklin had already crossed swords with mm. the proprietary elements in, in Philadelphia. So over a period of three years, uh, they, um, it went to the Privy Council. It took the Privy, um, it's, uh, first of all, sorry, it went to the Attorney General, then it went to the Privy Council. The whole, the whole thing took three years to go through to a final decision, which was that the Pens should pay some taxes, uh, but they could uh, they could levy their own assessment. Mm. Well, there you go. Quite fun, that. <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't mind yeah, that. Anyway, so at that stage, Franklin said that it should become a uh, a British royal colony. Yeah. He tried to push for that. He went back briefly uh, to, um, to Philadelphia between 1762 and 1764. He needed to, A, get the authority to push the idea of the, the royal colony idea. Mm. Uh, but also, he was owed out an absolute fortune in expenses. Mm. He came back in 1764 to try and set up the idea of uh, Pennsylvania becoming a yeah. British royal colony. But then he was drawn into a much wider political argument right. uh, after the, the Stamp Act. Yeah was brought in. Well, so, so those 10 years then, 64 to 74, Franklin's in London. Actually, to, seven, to March 1775, <laughs> Doug, he was there. Right, yeah. those 11 years. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't be Sorry pedantic. about that. Roughly 10-ish years. But it, yeah. it's an important time in which, to speak to your point, which is that Franklin is attempting throughout trying how to make the empire more British or how to work better to make the colony royal, to make America more part of uh, the British system, if not through direct representation, but certainly through some kind of mechanism that could, uh, you know, could have an imperial Britain that would live on. He's not at all, you know, advocating for some pseudo independence. Absolutely not. Sorry to be pedantic, Doug, but <laughs> aren't historians supposed to be pedantic? But never mind. Dates never mind. don't matter. Oh, Where did you learn this? Anyway, uh, the, the key thing was Franklin yeah. wanted wanted America to be a great. British Empire mm. of North America, 
I mean, he had been at the Albany, uh, the Congress of mm. Albany, mm. Uh, back in 1754. And at that stage, he had said, you know, I regard the colonies as so many counties gained to Great Britain. And he could see this vast potential mm. of North America. I mean, one of his jobs had been deputy postmaster yeah. for North America. So he traveled far and wide and he yeah. could see the incredible potential, but he wanted it for Britain. However, we come back to the Stamp Act. Britain had been extraordinarily successful in the Seven Years' War, basically had negated the threat of the French in North America. They were now the world's leading power. Absolutely no dispute about that, as they were to find out, of course, during the American War of Independence when all these other countries came in, France, Spain, Holland, the lot, to take on you know, the number one to, uh, to try and get their revenge. But anyway, the, the, the key thing was that they'd won the Seven Years' War, but the national debt had doubled. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and British troops w w re remained on American soil, partly to kind of protect the frontier. Mm -hmm. Because there'd been this massive expansion, they weren't really quite sure what to do right. about yeah. the frontier, so that they, they kept the troops there. Anyway, um, George Grenville, who was the, the Prime Minister at the time, thought, right, uh, we think it's fair for the Americans to pay something towards, or really pay for the, these troops. Understandable. Uh, but the problem was that he went completely and utterly against the charters of the colonies by introducing the stamp tax, which was a tax on all bits of paper, you know, marriage licenses, mortgages, uh, newspapers. That was a bit stupid, really, because they led the opposition to it. You know, even playing cards, the whole, the whole lot. And, uh, but it was against the charters mm. of the American colonies. And it was, it was almost like an ideological thing mm -hmm. that, you know, we, they, 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 yeah. um, they thought, oh, the Americans, they, they seem to have too many rights and privileges. Let's come. There was uproar. The colonies, which had previously been, uh, in some cases, fighting each other over expansionism, over right. territory, right. were brought together. Yeah. Now, Franklin uh, was very important in getting the act repealed. Uh, in there was a special um, uh, committee of the whole House of Commons. Franklin was actually brought in as the uh, the expert witness under the next Prime Minister, Rockingham. Grenville had been dispensed with. George III couldn't stand him, so um, Rockingham <laughs> came in, and um, because of Franklin, uh, the Act was was repealed. However, there was something a little bit dodgy left behind. Mm which was the Declaratory Act. Yes, right. Now, the Declaratory Act was a sop to the, the backbenchers who thought, you know, that they were, the Americans really were getting um, slightly above themselves. But it, 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 was, yeah. it, it was set up that it was not going to be enforced. So it was just really a sop to the backbenchers saying, well, there's kind of this rule. But the same had had existed for Ireland for years and years and years, so Franklin was not too worried about it. Mm -hmm. But then we come to the crucial thing. After Rockingham, uh, William Pitt, Earl of Chatham, came in. He was too ill to govern. And Charles Townsend, Chancellor of the Exchequer, 
introduced all these taxes. He introduces the tax on, um, it was known as the Townsend duties, on uh, paper, paint, glass, and tea. And these were seen as taxes introduced by Britain uh, on the Americans. They cut across the charters once again. They cut across the Declaratory Act within a year. Now, I do have this, um, this sort of way of summing it up and using the words of Sam Goldwyn <laughs> at this point, which is Sam Goldwyn said about a, an unwritten agreement, and this was an unwritten agreement, that a verbal or unwritten agreement was not worth the paper it's not written on. <laughs> and yeah. um, that was really when trust broke down. And everything that, that went forward from that, that point, including also there was the Quartering Act mm -hmm. uh, of, mm -hmm. of quartering troops in private houses in Boston um, and elsewhere. But of course, Boston became the focus. Uh, everything went downhill. And the extraordinary thing is that Boston uh, and Massachusetts was the most radical place in America. Yeah. And because of British actions against Boston and Massachusetts, amazingly, it brought all these disparate colonies together. Mm. And uh, Franklin was the representative of Massachusetts, the colony of his birth. He took this on in the, in the late 1760s. So not only was he the representative of the Assembly of Pennsylvania, but he was also of Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Georgia. So he was actually this very important figure. But the British government uh, didn't, uh, after, after Chatham, you, you got Grafton, Prime Minister, who sort of, um, he kept his government in power by putting in lots and lots of anti-Americans. Mm. Uh, because the American sort of resistance really created, again, as I said, this, um, this, this. Yeah, there's a reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, they, this kind of vicious. The, the Parliament circle. is supreme. It's established its supremacy in the 18th century, and they want to make sure that they everybody knows it, and they're going to rule America now, and and it's a mess. Exactly, <laughs> a complete. Because they don't have any mechanisms to do it. And really, a complete you know. and utter mess. Right. And of course, Franklin was very close. He was now a leading figure of the British opposition. Mm. And actually, I'm afraid uh, it's a bit cheeky of me. I go totally against double Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, nonagenarian um, Bernard Balin, still professor of history <laughs> at Harvard, who said that he had no real sort of clout with mm. the, the British political class. He certainly did. Uh, he was very close to the Earl of Shelburne, mm. and he became very close to Shelburne's boss, William Pitt, mm. when William Pitt came up with a, a peace plan in 17. 74 stroke 5 presenting it the 1st of February 1775 that was the work of Franklin and Chatham and Franklin had hoped that the opposition of uh, forces of Chatham and Shelburne on the yeah. one hand and of Rockingham and his supporters on the other they would come together and form a government. Well, what stopped that from happening? I they mean, hated they, each other. They got crushed. Uh, well, they, I mean, that never Well, the problem is that, yeah. that they hated Those each other. hated each other. Yeah. You know, had they not hated each other, they might have been able to do it. I mean, after all, when the war was lost and Lord North resigned, mm. 
mm. who came into government, a coalition right. of the Rockingamites. Yeah. Chatham had died by that stage. And that helped. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it did help a little bit because Shelburne yeah. came in, yeah. and the Rockingites and Shelburne governed in coalition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There hadn't been. It was Chatham the, pro the problem. You, you know, you compare him in your book to uh, you know, sort of Winston Churchill when he comes back. I mean, is he such a he's such a, a pain in the ass that you know people just. Well, yeah, he's I, the one. Well, the thing was, that, I, I mean, personality matters in this system oh, so much, right? Of course. Yeah. And the problem being, I mean, he was the great victor of the Seven yeah, Years' War. That was years ago. You know, and he, well, absolutely. But he had, he had massive... What mass have you done for me lately? Well, it, there was an element of that. And as I said, I mean, yeah. poor chap, he did, did have this sort of uh, mental and physical breakdown. Mm -hmm. He was quite a difficult personality. Uh, and he was quite evasive. Mm. So uh, there were occasions when people would ask him a difficult question. And uh, his prop, you, you have uh, previous people always have a, a prop that allowed them to think. I mean, Harold Wilson, the British Prime Minister of the, mm. of the 1960s and 70s, ha would smoke on his pipe, you know, mm -hmm. and sort of take part mm -hmm. to wild thing. Chatham was, would be, oh my gout, oh, ah, ah. And, uh, <laughs> that's, so, a, that's an awful <laughs> prop. <laughs> and actually, there is a portrait yeah. of, um, it's called The Death of Chatham, it wasn't actually his death. It was his collapse when mm. he made a speech about yeah. the American War in 1778. He died, died a month later. And it's this fantastic portrait of the House of Lords by um, John Singleton Copley. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, it's owned by, uh, by the Tate Gallery, but it's in the National Portrait Gallery in London. And it occupies an entire wall. And you can get quite close. Mm. And you can see that um, it is true what a young friend of, of Franklin wrote to tell him, having sort of witnessed the scene, he'd been an observer at the bar of the House of Lords. He said that he lost complete and utter respect for the Rockingamites, mm. that when he saw them laugh, when the day that Lord Chatham fell. Uh, mm, and you mm. can see this in this portrait, mm. that Rockingham, is I mean that's extraordinary. He's smirking. That, that, yeah, he's smirking. It's extraordinary that Copley actually got this past yeah. Rockingham. Amazing. Um, you know, he probably he still laughing. was smirking. They absolutely loathed each yeah. other, and there was a problem that the Rockingamites wouldn't get rid of the Declaratory Act because they'd introduced it. Right. That was the problem, and Chatham wouldn't uh, but they were prepared at the beginning of the war people like the duke of richmond as soon as hostilities broke out said well look, why don't we come to an agreement why don't we give them independence whereas chatham wouldn't allow independence he would negotiate everything else but not independence yeah. so they actually had this um this problem but uh, as i said they came together at, at the end of the war but it was too late i think one of the brilliant things you do in the book is this uh as this reconstruction of the figures and their personalities and in ways to serve your story and, and to help us understand, you know, the way personality as well as principle sort of interacted in this this critical moment. Uh, and, you, you know, you you benefit, of course, from the great portraiture that exists at the time. The Earl of Sandwich uh, is a figure. I mean, you have a couple of baddies. In, oh, yeah, absolutely. In, in your story, of course, oh, yeah. Hillsborough, you know. But the Earl of Sandwich, uh, there's this great portrait of him 
here, and this is because this is a podcast and there's no video, this is the perfect thing to be talking about is <laughs> images. But uh, who did this portrait of sandwich that you have? This one. Uh, it looks like he's smirking. I don't think I've seen an 18th century portrait with a kind of a little smile like that. I mean, it's really extraordinary. Oh, he is, yeah. 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 And yeah. he looks like an utter ass. I mean, he's just great. Yeah, well, one, one <laughs> could say a total bastard, actually, because yeah. he was uh, he was first Lord of the Admiralty um, yeah, right. in 1775. <clears throat> he was the person who was actually enforcing a form of martial law on Boston. Right. And when Chatham came and presented the great plan on the 1st of February, 1775, um, Chatham was, was uh, you know, listened to with respect, but then Sandwich got up and said that Chatham's plan should be completely mm. rejected. And he actually, he saw, he spotted, he spotted Franklin leaning on the bar of the house, and he said that he believed, couldn't believe that this was a work of a British peer, he believed it was the work of some American who he, whom he had in his eye at that moment, and described Franklin as the greatest enemy this country had ever known. Mm. And uh, it's amazing, actually, that Franklin, even after that, continued to try desperately through secret yeah. channels to, uh, to try and affect some kind of reconciliation. He was persona non grata. Uh, but the, que the, the question, though, would be, George, to what extent did he believe those were possible at that moment? I, I mean, he still tried, but he might have been... I you know. think that you know he he held these different possibilities yeah. in mind, yeah. but you know as time went on in that last six weeks, he began. I was talking about the prudential algebra, the idea yeah. of him working things out yeah. Yeah. on on paper. Uh, the, sort of these things on the debit side increased massively. Well, and his obsession with logic would speak to that as well. As sort of the the gaps are closing down, the possibilities are narrowing. Well, he, he, he got to listen to the debates. I mean, yeah. he'd heard the uh, the Americans sort of denounced as sort of subhuman. Mm. He'd heard Sandwich saying the Americans should be driven into the yeah. sea. Actually, the year before, he'd heard an ADC say that uh, all the male Americans should be castrated mm. um, at a at the equivalent of a kind of cocktail party, if you like. Mm. Uh, which um, then gave um, gave Franklin one of his more amusing pieces that he he mm. wrote um, uh, he wrote a lot of uh, entertaining pieces all sort of not under his own name all sort of uh, secretly but anyway he wrote and saying oh what a good idea this would be you know it would sort of uh, for one thing they uh, they wouldn't actually have to uh, import. Um, um, falsetto opera singers from Italy because America could actually provide their own. <laughs> it was very, very... But yeah. this was the kind of idiocy yeah. that he was having to deal with. But mm. still he battled on in the hope that the Shelburne and Rockingham factions, or rather then the Chatham and Rockingham factions, would come together, but it didn't yeah. happen. I love that metaphor of a master chess player better than... A lot of biographies really uh, play up the cockpit experience. It's so dramatic. It's sort of like that's the moment when Franklin decides or he switches and all that. And you show a much more complicated story of a man who's, you know, uh, you know, in the midst of so many different um, relationships, scientific and political, entrepreneurial, um, you know, visionary in some ways. 
and these are these are all kind of moving in their own direction. Uh, and I like it's a, it's a more real Franklin, I think. Well, absolutely, because he was able to keep all these different ideas yeah. in his head at the same time. As I said, you know, he was like he was like the grand um, chess grandmaster. Yeah. But the, you know, the but he loses his match. Well, many you, of them. <laughs> well, you could say yes. He does. He does lose his. He does. He gets he, on a boat. He does. He gets on a boat, <laughs> but he realizes that there's a bigger game. To play. There you go. Yeah, that's and, it. and as far as poker, absolutely. <laughs> and as far as the yeah, well, you know, the, the, the famous saying he, about you know the same famous saying about Reagan and Gorbachev is that uh, the national uh, game of uh, Russians is uh, chess and the national game of Americans is poker, and that was the that was the difference. Yeah, <laughs> and actually, yeah. Um, I think that uh, Reagan, with his pa poker face, did rather well. well. Exactly right. Yeah, he bluffed his way through Reykjavik. Absolutely know. extraordinary. <laughs> but anyway, so Franklin, um, he leaves London. So what's the great takeaway about Franklin in London for you? I mean, what, what is it the thing that what Americans need to know, Brits need to know, a reader well, of this book needs to know? Well, I think that the, the great takeaway from it is uh, going back to when he came over as, as a young man, uh, he went back to America and he founded all these great American institutions with British foundation stones. Uh, and there's has to be remembered that there is still a lot of Britain, more than sort of uh, place names, which are pronounced completely and utterly differently, very confusing. Uh, there's a lot of Britain still yeah, in well, America. I want that that college, the Magdalen College. I mean, uh, stop, yeah. stop with pronunciation. <laughs> uh, you know, come on. Anyway, so there's there's uh, there's a lot of Britain still in America, and we are actually getting closer and closer together. And this is not just because. Uh, that the Britain is um, decoupling itself from Europe. It has suddenly been uh, realized in Britain amongst the, uh, the great mass of people in Britain that America is actually our largest single trading partner. Mm, absolutely, one trillion. Yeah, and it, is, and it is something to be built on. But to go back... A million to Americans work in London for British firms right now, and a million Brits work in the United States for American firms. It is, it is yeah. extraordinary, and I think that is obviously going to continue. But back... And hopefully they all buy books about Benjamin Franklin. Well, they, they have that in common. <laughs> in fact, what I ought to do, I ought to actually get in touch with the, yeah. with the ocean liners. <laughs> so, you know, I can say, oh, right, well, you know, you're going over to, uh, to, to, to uh, London. Hopefully voyages won't be as hairy. As no, Franklin's no, not, not as bad as, <laughs> as Franklin. But in terms of um, the Franklin's sort of legacy, yeah. um, well, he offered this great opportunity to Britain of the great British Empire of North America. Mm. Uh, it was not accepted. And of course, he then became the fiercest of American patriots. But to go back to my previous point, uh, he did lay all these great British foundation stones, uh, which yeah. are still there today. Well, thank you, George, so much for recovering the forgotten part of Franklin's tale and telling it so well and spending some time with us here at Mount Vernon. It's been a pleasure to get to see you. Well, it's been an absolute joy, A, to be, uh, to be here, spending time here at this wonderful place, but also to have this chat. Thanks very much, Tom. Oh, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. 
Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.